a lot of the fraud happens with vulnerable populations, those folks who are in communities where doctors who are providing that care are doing some questionable practices to create fraud in the payer system. It not only affects them in terms of fraud for the system, but just the quality of care that poor people may be getting because of this behavior. In order for us to achieve parity in life expectancy, meaning being about the middle of the pack, we would have to achieve gains in life expectancy that have only been achieved a few times in recorded history. It's not likely to just happen unless we all work towards some bigger goal. So I think we need to learn from each other. A number of states are starting to do this. They're starting to set targets, not health care expenditures, but health care cost growth. That's a first good step. In Minnesota, we started measuring total cost of care. That was a big thing, but we set some standards. And now across all of Minnesota, every medical group is being measured on total cost of care and quality measures. Welcome to the December 2020 podcast of the American Journal of Public Health. Last month, in this podcast, my guest emphasized the urgency to give public health new foundations that make it more equitable. One way we do this is by reversing the priorities in health care taking part of the resources now spent in medical care, which is expensive per capita, and of inequitable access, and investing these resources in prevention, which is less expensive and is directed to all. In this issue, with my three guests, we review the evidence relating medical care expenses and health and discuss in which domains resources for prevention can be diverted from medical care. My guests are all authors of the special section in the December issue of AJPH, Dr. Sani Magnan, Professor Phyllis Meadows, and Professor Mac McCullough. I'm going to ask each of you to introduce yourself so that people know who you are. So let's start with Mac. Hi, my name is Mac McCullough. I'm an associate professor at Arizona State University, and I also serve as health economist for Maricopa County Department of Public Health. Thank you. Phyllis? My name is Phyllis Meadows, and I am a senior fellow with the Kresge Foundation in the health programming area and also a professor in health management policy with the University of Michigan Ford School of Public Policy. Thank you. Sani? I'm Sani Magnan. I'm a senior fellow with Health Partners Institute and associated with the University of Minnesota, both in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I was previous state health commissioner for the state of Minnesota. Thank you very much. So, Phyllis, my first question is for you. It seems like the government is very rich. It's cutting taxes. It can throw away trillions of dollars. So when we look for places to cut, why would we cut in healthcare? Why is this important to be worried about how much we spend? If you look at our counterparts in European countries, you'll note that the way that they spend compared to that of the United States is far better. And the reason is because they do more spending in the social sector and really addressing those things that people need more importantly than just the clinical services that they receive. 
So I don't know if I would say the government is rich because we're borrowing quite a bit of money, but the government might be more stingy in that they're not funding in the areas that could make the biggest difference in the health of our citizens. So what are those areas? We've been talking for the last decade about the social determinants of health. What does it take for people to be healthy? And those things include some of the basics, and that is housing. We need better job security. We need to be fighting for living wages. We've got 78% of the population living paycheck to paycheck. We need some new models for supporting food access and to make sure that people have the opportunity for health. And that comes with good jobs, with safe and stable housing, access to the food and the resources that they need to make it on a daily basis. Those are the things that I would suggest they think about more seriously. All right, but Sunny, if I understand well, Phil is it's cutting expenses, but to spend better. What, what do you think of this expression? Absolutely, I totally agree with what Phyllis had to say, spending better. We have a saying that every dollar that's wasted in healthcare didn't need to be spent on something too expensive or administrative excess and a lot of paperwork that didn't need to be done. Every dollar that goes into that means there's one less dollar that can be spent, say, for example, in early childhood education and early childhood development. All the research that's coming out that's saying those first three to five years of a child's life is so important. And we're not spending money there. Meanwhile, we're spending money on procedures in healthcare that have questionable value. So that's the whole concept of spending smart. Got it. But Mac, I have a question for you. People in public health usually are interested in spending. Why do you study where can we save money? Really, the facts are we in the U.S. spend a lot more money on clinical and medical care than every other country on earth. So we're spending somewhere along the lines of 10 or 11 or $12,000 per person per year on health care. When you spend that much money, you'd hope to get a lot out of it. We're not living the healthy long lives that you'd want to see if we were spending that much money. So it's how can we use that 10, 11 or $12,000 per person per year to achieve not health care for the sake of health care, but health. I would just add one additional piece to what Mac just said. Our equity measures in comparison are also dismal. So we're not spending wisely in categories and we're not spending wisely to address some of the inequities that are so prevalent and have become so visible during COVID. So if we spent in a wiser manner, we could have also a more equitable and fairer system. And this is one of the drive that bring you all to study and to advocate for this. And this brings me to a second question for Mac. How do the U.S. compare really with other European country. So I mentioned we spend somewhere on the order of $11,000 per person per year. Uh, other developed countries, especially in Europe, spend much less than that, somewhere around the range of about $4,000 per person per year. Even the second highest spending country still spends somewhere on the order of seven or $8,000 per person per year. It's easy to sort of get lost in these numbers, but if we could free up $3,000, $5,000, $6,000 per person per year, what that would do for our families' budgets, for our state and our local government's budgets, for our federal government budget, we'd have a lot more room to try to achieve other policy goals, such as equity, health, not just health care, 
Really, we are an outlier in, in terms of our, our healthcare spending. The problem is we are not an outlier in terms of our health outcomes. There was a, a great analysis done by David Kindig and colleagues published in AJPH in, in 2018 that showed in order for us to reach just parity in life expectancy with other peer countries would take some pretty sizable gains just to get up into the bulk of international norms. So we're spending three times more than the European countries. And how exactly are life expectancy or your health indicator? How worse is it? In order for us to achieve parity in life expectancy, meaning being about the middle of the pack, we would have to achieve gains in life expectancy that have only been achieved a few times in recorded history. It's not likely to just happen unless we all work towards some bigger goal. And that was what the Institute of Medicine, um, which has since been renamed the National Academy of Medicine, put out almost a decade ago. Let's rally around this goal of being average or technically the median. Let's have health outcomes and health spending that looks more like what other countries have. And between Dr. Kindig's analysis and some analysis in this issue is we're finding that's not gonna be easy. And especially with spending, it's gonna be incredibly hard. Healthcare spending grows almost every year. What if we just stop growing? There's still no reasonable time frame under which we would get to parity. So we can't just get to no growth and wait for other people to catch up to us. We've got to do more than just that. And even getting to no growth would be quite an accomplishment. Phyllis, what's the image you have in mind when you think of how much we spend and how much we get? What's the strongest image that this brings to your mind and how would you translate that? I see the waste again. I just see that we've not thought through the critical measures of well-being for people. And I agree that spending is a factor, but it is also a commitment to the health of people. And that has to be the North Star. And that takes not only fiscal shifts, that takes a whole mental shift towards those social elements that really affect our health. As we understand and know, only 10% of these investments in clinical care make a difference in our health. They're important. But then you have this other whole sector, the social conditions of our lives that really make a difference. And the image I see is us being more aligned with how our GDP is spent in alignment with other countries who see that as their investments go up on the social, their outcomes get better. And in the past, we rank like 21st in all of the international developed countries. We should be setting the standard of where others should be going in health, not trying to reach them, but going beyond them. So I think we need to learn from each other. A number of states are starting to do this. They're starting to set targets, not health care expenditures, but health care cost growth. That's a first good step. In Minnesota, we started measuring total cost of care. That was a big thing, but we set some standards. And now across all of Minnesota, every medical group is being measured on total cost of care and quality measures. But so, Sunny, as a state health officer, how would you translate that? How would you negotiate? 
a wiser spending of the amount dedicated to healthcare? First, I would say set some targets. A report from IOM said uh, almost 10 years ago, set a target on healthcare expenditures and a target on life expectancy. You've got an outcome for a cost. So let's start there. Second, I would say let's measure what matters. If we're saying we have wasteful spending that could be better invested in a different place to get us better outcome, let's start measuring that. Let's figure out what the standards are. Let's take waste categories. Let's figure out what they are. Let's figure out how do we measure excessive prices and excessive administration. And not to miss, we want to make certain if we're measuring overutilization, we're measuring underutilization. So we got to have that quality part. And then third, this is unprecedented for us to take an industry and ask them to downsize. <laughs> That's a tough thing for an industry to do. And we need to have just transitions in that. For a lot of places in this country, the hospital and the medical clinic are the number one employer. And we need living wages and we need people to not be living paycheck to paycheck. But when an economy is solely dependent on healthcare, we're not where we should be. I've looked at the sources of waste that Mac and Spear report in their paper. And some I perfectly understand, cost of drugs, uh, administration. But there's one very strange one, fraud. Why don't we do something against people who do fraud if it's such an important item in waste? Well, you take Medicare, for example, they do go after and they look for patterns and health plans have uh, computer algorithms that go looking for these patterns of fraud. And But let me bring it back to what Yui Reinhardt, when he was asked about what's the problem with health care costs and expenditures in the United States, he famously said, it's the prices, stupid. So I think we have to... Remember, people always want to go for the stuff over here, but it's really about prices and people continue to look at excessive prices. I just wanted to add yes, another perspective on that because we mentioned in the paper about fraud and how it impacts vulnerable communities. And I think there are a lot of different ways to go after fraud. And one of the things we pointed out is that a lot of the fraud happens with vulnerable populations. Those folks who are in communities where doctors who are providing that care are doing some questionable practices to create fraud in the payer system. It not only affects them in terms of fraud for the system, but just the quality of care that poor people may be getting because of this behavior. And so I, I do think that that's an easy fix and that there are systems in place that monitor, but the actions we take after we monitor some of those malpractices that contribute to fraud, I think we have to be more aggressive in that space because it's affecting people of color probably more frequently than others. This is very convincing. And, and Max, can you rank the sources of waste? What's the most important and in which order do they come? So speaking just in terms of their dollar impact on healthcare waste, the biggest one that we found in a pretty sizable review of all the literature on this topic was just called overuse. It's a problem that's the same magnitude as the cost of switching to renewable energy, for example. It's a $450 billion a year problem. 
Next is a couple of different things in the same rough ballpark. Administrative waste. So one of the consequences of having such a complex healthcare system is we have a lot of administrative spending compared to other countries. And misprevention opportunities. We're not all getting the preventive services that we should be getting, at least in terms of the Preventive Services Task Force recommendations. Next, clinical inefficiencies and excessive prices along with fraud and abuse. Fraud and abuse is a problem that's the same size as all of the tuition dollars paid to all of the public universities, plus all of the costs it would take to do universal pre-K education. This is huge stuff. This is hundreds of billions of dollars per year. And just the size of the issue we're talking about is like truly remarkable to think about. So whether that is daunting on the one hand, but also exciting in that if we can make even tiny gains in these areas, it could be transformational for some of the priorities that Phyllis has talked about really for huge populations in this country. So Alfredo, this is, this is why we need public health voices at these tables to begin to tackle this. As Mac just said, it's huge. It can be daunting. As Phyllis said, it's affecting populations in color in many different ways. And we need voices that are seen as neutral players, that are trusted voices in communities to help us to begin to address this and bring people together. That's what public health is known for doing. Help us think about uh, what can be solutions or next steps in many different communities across the country. That's why public health needs to be involved. The other way of reducing these costs is lower cost options. And prevention is a lower cost option. We need to keep people out of the healthcare system and uh, we need the resources to be able to do that, the higher expenditures are on the medical treatment side and the lower cost options are on the prevention promotion side. And so that's where public health comes in and that's why that's important to talk about. I remember years ago when they were, there was big conversations about prison reform, which is still on our face right now, but we're not thinking about it. And we, he, Matt used an example that this triggered for me and that was that, you know, it costs $100,000 a year, almost in some areas to house one prisoner per year. And if we took that same $100,000 that we're investing in incarceration and turned that into employable wages for many of the inmates, college education you can get. If I've got a 10-year sentence, that's a million dollars. And so really rethinking how we use our funding for health, for that target, which is health. And then I just had this one comment that this is, it keeps coming up for me because when I think of waste, I think about it broadly. It's not just the financial, but you think about the healthcare system as being one of the largest polluters that affect the environment where people live. And then low-income communities, poor communities feel the brunt of that. Waste, I, I think to limit it to just the financial, even though the financial is a really important start, we also have to think about the industry and the costs of medicalization of our health on the well-being of the environment and those experiences for communities who live in proximity to where all the dumping and the waste and the overuse occurs. Thank you very much. You need to educate me on something because I don't see how someone can 
disagree with what you're saying. It seems so important, so reasonable, such you know the right way to go. Why, when we speak of saving money, we are getting the ear of more conservative people. And when we spe speak of spending money, we get the ear of people on the other side. Can you explain that to me? I, I think it's always interpreted that people are thinking to save money. I think on both sides, they're thinking about how they can use money to better their interests. But I don't think it's necessarily like the conservatives say, oh, you know, we want to hold back funds. I think they want to use those funds in different ways. It's the same as on the Democratic side. So I would say maybe the progressive thought is how do we use the resources that we have to better the conditions of people in this country and make that the priority for spending, not adding more, not taking away, but just really reallocating, rethinking how we spend the resources we have. And Mac, in your state, do you see this type of divide between more progressive and more conservative thinker in terms of spending versus saving? Yeah, it's a really great question. And you're right. In theory, who should be opposed to spending less money to get better health outcomes, right? That should be a win-win. It turns out that it's tricky. It even happens to, to me and I'm sure to others that you go in and in spite of your best efforts, the doctor you saw was out of network, whether that's the anesthesiologist that comes in and says hi to you as you're slowly losing consciousness and then you get a bill two months later for an out-of-network encounter. That's a classic example of an incredible amount of money that we spent for the same service that wasn't the patient's fault, at least. It's hard to argue with wanting to get better health outcomes for more people at a more reasonable cost. Great. Sandy, this is your initiative. It took you two years to bring a special section together. I have to congratulate you. Have, please, the last word of this discussion. I first want to say it wasn't just my initiative. The Roundtable on Population Health Improvement at the National Academies was a growing ground for a collaborative that we created called Healthcare Expenditures that wanted to further that recommendation that was in for the public's health. And Steve Torch as co-chair has been incredibly valuable. Changing the public's health story is what we need to be about in this country. And it's going to take a lot of people working from a lot of different angles to change our trajectory and our health story. But together we can do it. And I think AJPH with public health and their role in communities as neutral conveners on this topic can be incredibly powerful. Right. I found the arguments of my guest quite convincing. There are two main messages emerging from this conversation. The first message is that increasing medical expenditure improves life expectancy, but up to a certain point. After a certain amount of expenses per capita, the international comparisons show that life expectancy plateaus. We don't know if the USA which spends more than any other country and has a life expectancy lower than most other advanced countries, 
is an outlier or a regular point on the curve. But the U.S. case suggests that overspending on medical care is counterproductive and reduces health. The second message is that there is a huge amount of money spent on medical care that is simply wasted. It is wasted in bureaucracy, fraud, overuse, and so on. We are talking altogether of a trillion dollars, at least. This is where, of course, the money needs to be taken from and invested in prevention social services, communities, education, and all the other domains that have been neglected for so long. Hopefully, in this new epidemiological context, these messages will be heard and heeded. I am grateful to all the members of the panel for their time and willingness to share their ideas, I also thank Emily D'Agostino and Michael Costanza for comments and edits on an earlier version of the podcast. Anthony Bancy assists me in the preparation and composition of the podcast. Francis Jacob plays the guitar on the paraphrase he composed and interpreted of a famous song about money. This is Alfredo Morabia at AJPH. If you want to read the research on reducing wasteful medical care spending in depth, take a look at the December 2020 issue of the American Journal of Public Health. For more podcasts, including podcasts in Chinese, visit us at AJPH.org or subscribe to it on your usual podcast app. A full transcript of the podcast is available on our website for persons with hearing disabilities. That's it. Thank you for listening.